0: Hey there, welcome to the DSR show, dating, sex, relationships. This is where we look at your whole dating lifestyle to optimize it and ultimately to get it to the point where you're gonna be satisfied with it. And to do that, we look at the subject from many different perspectives, whether it's scientists, whether it's psychologists, pickup artists, and on and on, many different perspectives to get you to that point where you understand what you want because each of us is different and you have the tools to get there. Before we get into this episode, a quick mention of our internal program that helps guys improve their dating lifestyle as fast as we can. It is a behavior change focused program. So it's a bit different to a lot of the other products and courses you might have seen out there, which are advice driven, what I would call advice driven. Our program is all about experiential learning, taking you through a program of missions and challenges and other experiential tools to get you to change naturally. If you'd like to check that out and learn more about it, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash implant, I-M-P-L-A-N-T, implant. Today's topic is honesty in relationships. We're going to be looking at the reality of our relationships. How honest are we really being in them? How honest are we being with the women we date or we marry? It has to be said that normally there's a hell of a lot of white lies in relationships. In this episode, we're going to look at the typical situations where we lie, whether it's a girl we just met, a girlfriend, a wife, someone we're married to. I'm going to go over some useful approaches to being more honest in these situations. More importantly, we're going to look at the benefits of being honest in our relationships, because I imagine not all of you think it's beneficial to be honest all of the time. Today's guest has got some very strong viewpoints on this, and he's very well known for radical honesty. So we're going to dig deep into why you would want to be more honest in your relationships and with the people you meet. Brad Blanton, PhD, is a psychologist, a therapist, and a seminar leader. He's the author of Radical Honesty, How to Transform Your Life by Telling the Truth, which was a nationwide bestseller in 1996. It's been translated into seven languages and is still one of the top-selling books on psychology on Amazon today. Radical Honesty eliminates lying to others and it eliminates self-deception, so lying to yourself, from your life. That's the whole purpose of it. And this is something that you'll see Brad clearly demonstrate in this interview. So I think that's something really valuable in this interview because he really demonstrates what he preaches. We talk about some of his personal life, his own relationships, and other areas of his ideas and so on. And you'll see that he's very direct, open, And honest about that. So you can learn both from the advice in this interview, but also the example of that advice in the way he's approaching the whole interview. Brad has been married five times and has carried out nude workshops. He teaches nude, and people who are going to these seminars are also nude for one of the days there. And he's done a lot of other interesting things, as we'll see in the interview. To get the links to today's guest and everything he's up to, and anything else we mention on the show, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick out the episode there. You get the transcript, the MP3 download, and all of that. If you want all of that in your email inbox, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and every time an episode comes out, you'll get it in your inbox. Now, let's meet Brad Blanton. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission To discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships. To become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information. So that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Glad to be here. I thought what we do is we kick off with something that you're very used to, which is being radical in your honesty. Something else we often do in the show is get to know someone at the beginning and asking about their dating, sex, relationships, lifestyle and how it's gone. So I thought just to kick off is like how many wives have you had?
1: I've been married five times. I have had five successful marriages.
0: Great, great. And how many sexual partners have you had?
1: Oh, no, probably five or six hundred.
0: Wow, that's a fair number. Can I ask how that occurred? Was that, for instance, having affairs? Because it seems like you've been married a long time as well. How did that occur, just in like brief terms?
1: I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And uh, we, had, we weren't worried about STDs then the way we had to be later on. And women were liberated and men were liberated and there were... Lots of possibilities for sexual experimentation. Almost all those partners were women. I've had sex with men three or four
0: times too. Okay. Was that for just for experimentation or something you wanted to do or what was the motivation?
1: It was experimentation and a friend was gay and wanted to make love to me. So we did. And basically, I went out with a lot of women. I really, really didn't do anything using my brain for the first 50 years of my life. I just followed. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great time in the 60s and 70s and basically i had an experience of uh, more sex than i could stand i started when i was living in washington dc and i was single i had been divorced a couple of years and i was rich and i was fairly good looking and it was like 1969 70 and 71 and i started looking forward to a night without going out on a date, like I used to look forward to going to bed as a strange woman.
0: Oh, how old were you? How old were you then?
1: About 28.
0: Wow. That's early. That started to hit me in my early 30s sometime, I think. I'm just interested. Like, so what do you think got you to that point? Was there an event or is it?
1: No, there were just, it's just that basically I was busy. I felt like I was servicing Washington, (laughs) DC. (laughs) <laughs> so i tried to organize it in such a way that it has some constancy in my life so i got married to one woman on monday nights oh um, so every monday night we were together and we'd go talk and go out and eat and make love and have a great time catch up on the week and it worked out so well after a couple of months i got married to another woman on thursday nights And that worked out really well, too. We had a great time. In fact, my Monday night and Thursday night wife met at a party on Monday night one night. We all went out and went to bed together. And they were lovers, too. And uh, that worked out so well. I got married to another woman on Friday nights.
0: Are these real marriages or these kind of reservation nights?
1: One night. One night per week marriages. (laughs) All right. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And then uh, basically... Then I took a trip around the world and was gone for a year. And but basically I had all those nights of monogamy for constancy. And then I left the other nights open so I could screw around a little bit in case I felt too. Yeah. <laughs> so all those things. And I've been in various polyamorous relationships and I'm not very good at handling jealousy, but I've learned some about it and Basically, all throughout all that stuff, I was also a clinical psychologist in Washington, D.C., so I learned a lot from that work about lying. And basically, I learned that the major cause of most stress in couples, conflict in couples and relationships, had to do with withholding information or hiding by telling stories, or, or basically the most pernicious form of lying is simply not mentioning things. Uh after years of teaching people to start telling the truth and quit lying and finding that it worked to solve depression and anxiety reactions and a lot of sexual problems and insomnia and some, you know, a whole lot of things, that basically when people cleared the boards and became open and honest with each other and faced their fears they had of being rejected or, or angering or insulting or making mad their partner, but they told the truth, the honesty is much more clearing and endearing than the hard times that have to be gone through. So you have to get used to being willing to be uncomfortable and being comfortable with being uncomfortable is the key, I think to having good relationships.
0: So that sounds interesting from our relationship perspective. It sounds like you're saying like, because a lot of us have this idea of the perfect relationship where it's stable. I guess we're not having arguments and there's security. In that relationship and emotional stability i'd like to say is that what you're saying Are you saying that's the wrong way to look at a relationship it's not really what what it is in the ideal sense
1: well generally idealism is not my forte <laughs> what i think is that you're not going to have a relationship where you never get angry at each other you're not going to have a relationship where you don't get your feelings hurt or disappointed now and then basically that will happen the better you can Deal with that. Tell the truth about it. Handle it. Uh, Basically, the better you'll be in relating and the better you'll be in relationships, new, old, or intermediate. What happens? The reason I say I've had successful marriages is because my kids are all successful. They're all contributors to other people. and And they're basically a great contribution to the people who know them. They're in positions of where they are giving gifts to lots of people all the time. Yeah. And that had something to do with the working through of honesty in the relationship with their parents and me. And it had more to do with them being having wonderful mothers than that me being such a great father, but I was a pretty good father for the first like 10 or 12 years. And what works out is being able to say what you want, say this is what I want you to do, and if you don't, it's okay, I'll take care of it myself. If I get mad at you, I'll get mad and get over it. It's not up to you. My happiness is not up to you. And when you say to another person, my happiness is not up to you, and this is what I would like for you to do, but you don't have to, on the receiving end of that, you're completely willing. Oh, sure, as long as I don't have to, I'm willing to. <laughs> and if you really mean it, and you carry it out, that basically you don't get your way, and you get mad about it, and you get over it, or you get hurt about it, and you get over it, they see that you actually mean what you say, And they trust you because trust is based on honesty. It's not based on performance. It's not based on performing a good show for the other person. It's like mostly in the dating game and most dating advice is about some kind of one kind of performance or another. But the best dating advice I know of is just to forget about performing and say, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. I'm glad you did that. I don't like that she says do you think i look fat in this dress you say yeah <laughs> and basically uh whatever it is you say it and you deal with it and stay with it and then eventually you work things out and you might work things out for like 5 years or 10 years or 20 years or 15 years and then decide you don't want to stay together anymore then you don't then you go with someone else but the same thing works and you can still be friends and care about each other and love the children together and do a good job of co-parenting without it being a permanent, ongoing measure of the value of a relationship is only a number of years in a relationship. That's not a very good value measure because there are a lot of people in miserable relationships for 50 years. I'm sort of all over the map here, but basically what I'm trying to talk about is that the most attractive thing, I think, for you with other people is their ability to be honest, even if it hurts your feelings or if it offends you, you feel like you can trust.
0: So I'm sure a lot of people are, I'm sure they're not aware when they would be lying according to the way you see lying. We have different concepts of lying and so on. So I know you've worked with many, many couples and so on in your seminars over the years. What would you say are the most common ones that come up in when you're coaching people and that you've seen and perhaps they don't see for themselves the examples of where they're lying and they're causing these problems?
1: Well, just being in the habit of holding stuff back, just being in the habit of withholding when you think something, but you don't say it out loud. You did something, but you don't tell what you did when you're basically withholding. Like my definition of honesty is that you report what you notice period. And when you report, there's a limit on what you can notice. The entire awareness continuum can be divided into three parts. You can notice what's going on around you right now. You can notice what's going on within the confines of your own skin right now, sensations and movement and so forth. And you can notice what's going through your mind right now. And honesty, radical honesty, is reporting what you notice. So you say, right now, I'm thinking, and you say what you're thinking. Right now, I'm noticing I'm tense on the left side, and I'm worried about what you're going to say back to me when I tell you this. Right now, I'm imagining that you're mad. Or right now, I like the way you look, or I don't like the way you look. Whatever it is, basically, you just share on an ongoing basis what's in your mind and what you notice. Most of it's all bullshit anyway. (laughs) But you go ahead and share it so that y'all can both debunk it. And then what happens is that you end up having a few rough spots, but mostly getting along and appreciating the other person you can depend
0: on, to be honest with you. So I'm thinking of an example here where, uh, for instance, a guy is out on a date with a girl and he's looking at her and he's thinking, wow, she looks really hot tonight. I'm really glad, really glad I got her out. So in that situation, he would just say, I was just thinking how hot you look right there. Obviously guys have got different ways of expressing that in their heads. I can imagine they may get into trouble in some areas where they're thinking overly sexual in your world. Is it okay? Like you just let it out as it is and you basically face the consequences of that and deal with them. And as you learn to go through life with this approach, and obviously some, some women are going to respond differently to others. Some will be more accepting, they're kind of more open, and they're more used to this kind of straight talk. And others are, I guess, in your world, they're more used to avoiding um, that kind of darkness.
1: Well, I don't know. I would just say what I noticed, like, basically. When you were talking about it, you were squirming a little bit. <laughs> 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 and I would say, I think you look really hot and uh, really happy we went out tonight. I hope that did not scare you away, but that's what I think. And if you didn't want me to think that, why did you wear that low-cut thing where you look so good? That's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: something like that. Okay, great. What's the most common objections people come up with against using this approach? What do people get stuck with in their head when they try it for the first time or when they're thinking about trying it and they push back on you and they say, this will never work?
1: Well, basically, I say to them, give it a try and see what you think. It's up to you. It's your life. Do what you want. I'm telling you that in my experience, this is what works and what works better than various things that you try to to pose with. There is a problem of mistaken identity that we all share that as we've been taught all of our lives that we are our reputation. We are the grades we make. We're what the teacher thinks of us. We're what our parents think of us, what our peers think of us that the most important thing to play to in adolescence is probably just a long psychotic period in which everyone thinks that who they are is the story they get generated about them and the pictures in the minds of other people. It could be that who you are is the present tense noticing being. Who you are is a person sitting there looking at a screen, listening to me and talking back. And who I am is this other person on this screen doing that. That's my fundamental identity. And then it's your fundamental identity. And the stories about your reputation and what you imagine other people imagine about you, those are secondary and not as important as your ability to notice. In fact, more often, they're a distraction from noticing. So while you're being hysterical about trying to imagine what she must be thinking, you could say, well, I'm wondering what you're thinking. What are you thinking? (laughs) And she'd say, well, something. And then you could say, well, is that really true? Is that, what else are you thinking? And then she could say, well, I'm thinking I don't like being asked that question. And I'd say, oh, okay, good. Then that's valid information. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop asking those kind of questions. <laughs> but it's information. You know? So what you get if, you're, if your identity is not what you imagine other people are thinking about you, you can ask people what they're thinking. And you can, ask, you can tell them what you think about them. And you're already at a deeper level of relating than the usual shallower level of relating. And I swear, even very shallow people prefer greater depth. Everybody refers having a conversation with someone they feel like is a friend who's listening and who uh, will say back what goes on with them. And there's not much use in wasting a lot of time if the whole deal is about, how am I doing? How am I doing all the time? You know, basically, if you have that, you need to say, how am I doing? How am I doing? Did <laughs> I get sick and ask myself this all the time. So I'll say it out loud. And say, well, you're doing okay, I against- guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you must have had some very interesting conversations over the years. How long have you been practicing this now?
1: Well, I've been teaching radical honesty workshops for about 30 years. And uh, I was a clinical psychologist for about 25 years in Washington, D.C. And was doing both overlapping part of the time. So... I've talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people about their life stories and about the stories of their love lives and stuff like that.
0: Was there a moment when you decided to apply this to your life?
1: It didn't come exactly like as a moment like that. I became less of a liar as I grew older, but I was pretty much willing to confront hypocrisy. I was in the civil rights movement from way back when I was 19 years old, and I was in Basically, in the anti-Vietnam War movement, I got various—I went against the established order of things, refused to serve in Vietnam, did a whole bunch of things that were told people, to hell with you, I'm not doing what you want. If you don't like it, you can kiss my ass. And basically, got by with it. I didn't get killed. I got shot at. I got bombed. <laughs> I got put in jail. I got beat at with billy clubs and stuff, but basically— I got by with telling the truth and it was up against people who didn't want to hear and they didn't kill me and they didn't kill too many of my
0: friends. That's great to hear. I'm very glad. That was a funny... um... You know, when we're talking now, I was actually thinking of some other people I've spoken to and also some other people's work I've known, uh, which I'm assuming you've probably come across also, which you may relate to or you may not. So there's nonviolent communication from Marshall Rosenberg have you followed his, his work?
1: I have and I've had a number of his nonviolent communication teachers in groups of mine and stuff like that. I don't like it much. I don't think
0: Okay, that's good to know yeah. I
1: think violent I think violent communication is a misnomer. Like violence is violence and communication is communication.
0: Yeah.
1: That's one of the things I encourage people to do is to cuss each other out in the process of an argument. Anything short of actual violence of hitting each other, but it's okay to cuss each other out and holler and raise hell. And it's part of the process because when you experience an experience, it can come and go. But when you resist experiencing it, you cause it to persist. And so a lot of the violent, nonviolent NVCC people that I had with me were very angry people who hadn't gotten over their anger. And whereas a lot of people that I have worked with are less angry than they used to be.
0: So the more you practice, just noticing, uh, speaking about what you're noticing? Over time, does it get easier? What generally happens in this process when people...
1: What happens is when you're attached to your standards being lived up to and you keep telling the truth about your, you start recognizing it's me being tightly attached to standards that I expect other people have to live up to. And I really don't like people having standards that I have to live up to that are different than my own. And so an honest conversation about it is... Well, I think it's wrong for you to do that or you're a fool and it's up to you, it's your life and it's up to me if you think I'm wrong and I'm a fool. But you can still have a conversation. You can actually forgive a Republican. It's hard, but it's possible. (laughs) And so to get into forgiveness means you feel things through in your body. It's not conclusions you reach with your mind. They come secondary. What's secondary is I'm mad at you and you show up an hour late and I say, I resent you for coming at eight o'clock and you said you'd be here at seven o'clock, been sitting around here waiting on you for a goddamn hour and I resent you. And they said, Well, I got tired of dragging. I don't give a damn what your excuse is. Well I don't resent you for resenting me for it. We holler a little bit, about 10 minutes later we go out and get a beer and we're friends again. Now how do we do that? We got that by getting mad, staying with each other, having the experience, having it increase, decrease, and then fade away. And we kind of appreciate the other person for sticking with us while we got mad and got over it. We feel the warmth and we feel that. Let that come again. So what happens is you have these renewed relationships that have to do with now what? See, okay, now what? But you're open to new possibilities without being guarded against each other. Because you've already gone through what you're guarded against. And so that openness is very attractive. It helps you fall in love. I'm you fall in love with lots and lots of people when you tell the truth and they tell the truth to you and uh, in lots of ways. And being in love is more fun than not being in love. So,
0: Would you say is it deeper love than the typical love people are talking about? You say you fall in love in many different ways. If you compared it to the, the classic movies where we're getting bombarded with all the time, and how they picture love there versus what you were talking about right now. Is it different?
1: No, that love, romantic love is just wonderful, just that it doesn't last. <laughs> if you And particularly, it lasts shorter and shorter depending on how much you demand it. Oh, that was so great. And you end up living in a hillbilly song. Why don't you love me like you used to do? Why do you treat me like a worn-out shoe? My, eyes are still, my hair is still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? <laughs> And that's what ruins romantic love is all those expectations. You have to keep it up, keep doing it. It's okay. It can come and go. So you say, oh, well, I loved the hell out of you last week, but I'm not so not so uh, wrapped up in you this week. And so that's, they say, yeah, me too. Or, well, I'm loving you this week because you're shutting up more. And you have these conversations that allow you to fall in love again after you get over being hurt or angry or being mad at each other. Right. Otherwise, you it work out a kind of a stale compromise, like an agreement between two accountants or lawyers or something. And that's not much fun. So basically, I recommend that you go ahead and risk losing love in order for love to renew.
0: It sounds like a more passionate, kind of rocky road. The little kind of argument you were doing back there sounded relatively rocky for people to get through just a discussion. So it sounded like you're kind of provoking arguments. I mean, your goal here is not to avoid conflict. It's kind of like to push for it quickly yeah. and, and and spark it on purpose in order to get to the other side, uh, where more the renewal and you becoming closer. Is that, is that the idea behind it?
1: Not exactly. If you're demanding that the other person do something live up to your expectations, including your expectations about honesty, and you're always trying to challenge them, I think you're lying and all that stuff. You might do that a little bit down and then. It depends on if it's fun or jokey, if it's like serious. And you're also always trying to promote some kind of conflict to prove that they were actually mad. It's all their fault anyway. That's another stupid mental agenda. What I have is a general purpose mental agenda of tell the truth the best you can. If you get it 80% right, you'll be doing better than most of the people in the world. Don't lie on purpose. Tell the truth and keep on engaging based on I'm afraid you'll get mad at me if I tell you this. So I'm telling you, now I told you that, are you mad at me? And then it's okay if they're mad at you. and Then you hope they get over it. If they don't get over it, you say, well, I resent you for still looking the same way they did yesterday. And then you try to get over that. And the idea is that over and over again, by sharing and being straight and honest with each other, we're able to feel our way through things rather than think our way around things. And when you can feel your way through things with another person, my experience is that I'm always grateful that they were there with me and I was there with them and they could feel their way through and I could feel my way through. It's a warm appreciation for the wideness that my life can be. It doesn't have to be some kind of narrow, moralistic focus. I don't have to live like I'm a preacher or a Baptist or a Muslim or some other addict to moralism. (laughs) So basically... It's freedom, that you're granting each other freedom to be who you are and to discover together over and over again what nuances show up in that context. It's more fun, generally. You don't find somebody who has a good sense of humor to be like a narrow person. Like Comedians have suffered some. They've been mad, they've been hurt, they've been through a variety of experiences and they're able to laugh at a whole lot of things that other people aren't able to laugh to because they were scared to go through them.
0: But it also strikes me as an approach to life, like a philosophy, Uh, you're taking more risks, more social risks, we'll call them. Yeah. But you're also going to stand out as more unique just because people tend to bend towards the average when they're being more diplomatic and they're just trying to be nicer to people and avoid conflict and so on. They tend to go to the average. So it strikes me that over time, you're going to become more of an individual, a unique individual, whatever that is, your version of it. Have you seen people grow in confidence as a result of that or as a result of this process? Have you seen very insecure, kind of, inconfident people? Like, what kind of internal psychological impact does this have on people over time? Well,
1: it's what you're confident
0: about. What I basically
1: do in my workshops is I teach people they can't depend on their mind. Our minds are terrible. Our minds are very, very poor instruments. We have these assessments that are based on reactions that happened in the past that we didn't fully experience and we avoided and forgot half of them. And we're living according to principles. We think we generated ourselves but we just picked them up from like watching some bad sitcom on TV. <laughs> and basically our minds are very unreliable instruments. I have a section of one of my books entitled, A Mind is a Terrible Thing, Wasted. <laughs> Confidence comes from being confident in your being. I'm okay. I can notice. I can take care of myself. I can handle it. If I, if I have dropped in some foreign country without any billfold or credit cards, I'll probably survive. <laughs> and then I think I'll wander around and figure out what to do by paying attention to what's going on, seeing who's there that can help and stuff like that. It's being able to survive as a being, as a noticing being. That's what gives you confidence. And you can also admit that you're wrong. You can say something, it looks to me like such and such, what do you think? And they say, no, no, that's not what's going on. Oh, well, good, thank you, you say, because you're not vested in being right all the time. You're just vested in being as accurate and a sharing way as you can. And their mind is just as screwed up as your mind's. You know, I'm not going to do everything that you want me to do if basically what you want me to do is something you came up with in your mind, which is no more reliable an instrument than mine. So I don't trust your mind or my mind, either one. In fact, we both need each other. To figure out what might be halfway good, given that we both got these ill-functioning minds. So that confidence comes from lack of confidence in your mind <laughs> and more confidence in your ability to survive as a being.
0: Right. So it's through living through challenges, basically through living through experiences, that we gain more confidence. Is that by taking this more direct approach, you're going to be exposed to more conflict in your life. So you're effectively coming over lots of little bumps all the time. You get used to it and you're used to dealing with just your world and, and your experience, which has more bumps in the road. Like, so we, we've spoken about this on the show before, the more richer and the more risks you've been taking in your lifestyle, the more confidence you're going to naturally develop. And that's, that's one of the approaches to developing more confidence, just knowing that you are going to be able to deal with the situations when they come up. So it strikes me that your approach is you're actually introducing more conflicts by its nature. And so that people would reasonably become more confident if they can stick it. The question is, like, if some people do they start this, they get some negative reactions Do they back back down in your experience.
1: Well, what happens usually is sort of the mechanical movement, like when you read the way your eyes work, like. I'll tell you a story. I was in Paris. This was about 35, 40 years ago. I was in Paris. I was staying on the left bank, and I got on the subway. I had to go do some errands in the morning. So I was going back on the subway fairly early, like 8.30 in the morning or something like that. And this really good-looking woman got on. She was really hot. She had a short skirt. She was standing there, and I was sort of looking at her. So it was everybody else, basically. So I watched her, and then as I started to get off at my stop, she started moving forward, too. So I walked alongside of her, and I saw she had the Herald Tribune in her hand. And I said, is anything good in that Herald Tribune this morning? And she looked at me, and she said, no, it's pretty much the same old thing. And I said, well, actually, I already read it. I just like the way you look, and I wanted to strike up a conversation with you. So I thought that would do it. And she said, oh, there you go, being honest. I said, yeah. <laughs> so I said... <laughs> So we were walking up the steps out of the platform, and I said, there's a place up here we could stop and get a cup of tea, and I'd like to buy you a cup of tea. And uh, so you want to? And she looked at me, and she said, okay. So we went in and got a cup of tea. So I got a cup of tea, and I set it on the table, and I said, I didn't really want any tea. I just thought I would delay you, so I might have a better chance of going to bed with you. <laughs> <laughs> she said, there you go, being honest again. I said, Yeah. <laughs> So I said, uh, so do you want to? And she said, no. And I said, well, how do you know? And she said, well, I don't just go to bed with perfect strangers. You know, she's from the States. You know, she said, and I said, how do you know? She said, what do you mean, how do I know? And I said, well, how many strangers have you been to bed with? She said, none. I said, so you don't know what you're talking about then, do you? <laughs> and she kind of laughed. And I said, here, I've got a scientific proposition. We'll finish our tea, we'll talk, get in touch a little bit, and we'll go over to my apartment, which is only like a block or two away. We'll go upstairs, we'll make love, and we will then get up, get dressed. You go home, give me your dress, I'll come pick you up tonight, we'll go out to dinner, we'll have a glass of wine, a bottle of wine, and we'll eat a meal, we'll come back, we'll make love again, we'll compare the two experiences, then you'll have some signed <laughs> <laughs> She said, okay. So we did. <laughs> And we concluded at the end of that that it was still fun the first time, but it was more fun after we really knew each other and we had made love the next morning too, The several times afterwards were more fun because we'd relaxed and known each other, but it still wasn't worth passing up. So I told her, pass that around. She was a social worker, and we wrote for years and talked about this and stuff like that. So what happened was I would be a little pretentious, and then I'd come off and tell the truth. And then I'd be pretentious, and I'd come off and tell the truth. And basically, it's not anything that everybody doesn't know is going on anyway. Because when the dating game, you know, is a game. It's a game. Everybody's playing the game. The woman's trying to meet some guy she wants to go to bed with and maybe have a relationship with, and so is the guy. So you might as well talk about that on the first date or first hour of the first date or something like that. Because basically, you can say what you're doing, what you're looking for, how come you're doing, whether you like how much you like her, and stuff like that. I recommend it sometimes that people go out on like four dates in a row, four nights in a row, and just experiment that the date is for being able to practice telling the truth. Or when they catch themselves pretending to come off it, just for practice and see how it happens. And it usually happens wonderfully. They're surprised at the quality of the connection they make with
0: other people. That's a great experiment. I hope some people listening take you up on it to see how it goes.
1: Just say I'm not here particularly to make a particular future relationship with you. I'm just practicing being honest. How about that?
0: (laughs) I think it will, actually. It might
1: might turn Um, out pretty
0: good. We haven't spoken about communication style. When you're being honest, obviously there's different ways to do it. So what I'm not clear on is like, where's the uh, line between being diplomatic? And you would say you're not exactly being truthful. Would you suggest that people are are relatively direct and blunt or that, which is why I was comparing it a little bit to nonviolent communication, because I see some similarities, some overlap in your, because he talks about the facts, like you should express the facts like you talk about. But I think where you differ quite considerably is you are not so concerned about avoiding violent communication. You think it's a good part. So in your communication style, do you have any rules or is it pretty straightforward? You just communicate as you would normally
1: Kind of rules of thumb, which are basically diplomacy doesn't work. Obviously, look at the world. The world, the way the world works is through diplomacy. Diplomacy is usually considered to be the alternative to war. I say it's the cause of war. So I don't believe in diplomacy. As far as I'm concerned, diplomacy sucks. And so if you're diplomatically, someone says, do I look fat in this dress? You say, yeah, you look like a whale to me. Or. You say no, not particularly bad. I didn't even pay attention to your general sizes, looking at your tits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing is, being if you're diplomatic, at least try to come often enough to be honest about what you're being overly diplomatic about. And being overly careful is not a very attractive thing. I don't think I don't particularly like people that are being very careful all the time. You know, it's like there's kind of a
0: you just gave a very uncareful example of calling someone, a girl a whale. Would you recommend that communication style or would you recommend like, ah, oh, you look pretty fat in that dress? Yeah, nothing nothing added.
1: I wouldn't worry about diplomacy. If you overdo it or do it wrong, you can work it out. You can say, oh, well, that was kind of harsh. Was that hurt your feelings? Yeah, okay. Would anybody do that to you before? She talk about how she got shamed into getting a little overweight by tranquilizing herself with food in the first place. You can have a real conversation about that. And so, what happens is that there could be an opening because of lack of diplomacy that isn't there because of this overweening diplomacy.
0: Great, great. Do you think there's some people who can't take this? Like, I have seen examples in your work where couples, one would basically embrace the process and go on with it, and the other half wouldn't be able to deal with the process. So, do you think there are specific people? who can't deal with this directness they take it too personally or something like this right so we're talking about for example let's just continue with like the girls in in a dress she looks kind of fat are there some women in the world who can't take that and it's gonna result in breaking the relationship immediately or have you found that in general that it it still leads to positive outcomes or basically do it like is it useful to be selective about who we use this directness with or are you just saying like use it with everyone regardless of the consequences and that will end up being better for you in the long term
1: I would say that you're less likely to be erratic if you just do it all the time. Don't worry about the consequences. And now and then, you're going to lose an acquaintance. If you hurt somebody's feelings, you stick with them until they get over having their feelings hurt. If you make them mad, you stick with them until you get, they get over being mad. And you stick with them while they're mad and while you're mad. And you stick with each other. It's the sticking with them that counts, not the general bullshit of your mind, which is always a bunch of judgments that are basically some kind of reactive formation from your past and don't have much to do with what's going on in
0: reality anyway. So what does sticking with them mean? Does it mean hanging out and not leaving or?
1: Your feelings are hurt. I'm here with you. I'll stay with you. But if you want to cry, they cry. And if you they feel bad and they want you to hold them, you hold them. And if they get mad and they want to cuss you, you stay there when they cuss you. And you cuss them back if you get mad.
0: But you're there
1: for them as well as being honest with them. That counts for more than just dancing around on eggshells. Dancing around on eggshells is just a waste of life. So, And now and then, some couples break up where one of the couples doesn't want honesty and the other one does. But more often than not, they both work out whether they stay together or they break up in some honest way. So that you have a whole lot better breakups when people are honest than you do when they're dishonest. You have breakups where people are living the rest of their life in reaction to what they didn't get finished with that first. And you have breakups where people forgive each other and they're still friends and they still know each other and they're still, like, happy to hear about each other's lives and they raise kids together and stuff like that, appreciating each other now for them sticking with each other. So basically, I'd say yes. Guardedness about diplomacy is bullshit as far as I'm concerned. Diplomacy is mostly bullshit. I'm still diplomatic myself now and then, but i got profit enough where people know it's not running.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, you, cause you strike me as a very caring person. We were talking about giving gifts to, to people. And I know about your work of course, which is all about helping people and so on. So would you say that that really makes a big difference in this approach, right? So for instance, some of the examples you gave us where you have offended someone because you were direct, you know, you look as fat as a whale, afterwards you'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, are you feeling bad? So then you're being direct. But you're in a goodwill, caring way, so...
1: Well, the thing is that the question is a phony question in the first place. They are only asking the question because they want to say, no, no, you don't look bad at all this. They're trying to manipulate. So right. I, don't, I resent the manipulation anyway, so I overdo the reaction. And then we talk about that, and they can say, well, it is kind of manipulative. And I say, yeah, it was kind of overreacting. We say look like a whale, but I thought it was funny. And she'll say, well, it wasn't that funny. I hurt my feelings. I said, okay, I'm sorry, hurt your feelings. But you work it out, you negotiate, you have some conversation where you're sticking with each other, listening and speaking.
0: It also sounds like people using this approach will learn a lot more about people. I mean, we talk talking, they'll expose more, but you keep giving these examples where people get into conversations about what they're actually doing. Does that naturally happen a lot more? Or is that the the way you tend to approach it? Like if some of the guys at home uh, go out and start doing it. So, are they, are they more likely to get into conversations about what we're really talking about here? And
1: the problem is, your mind is just a worry ward. It's a worry machine. Basically, the reason your mind is constantly warning you be careful, be careful, be careful, be diplomatic and all that stuff. Yeah. Because you don't want to just come forth and say what you actually think and have done and what you feel. But going ahead and doing that turns out to work out better. So, basically, I recommend this. Uh, very compassionate view called fuck them if they can't take a joke. <laughs> 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 and that's where everyone else's mind from my mind. Like your mind is just as bad a garbage can as mine is. <laughs> you know, you got a mind. You got a British accent to go with. People will even believe. <laughs> 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 so I get by with murder because I got a southern accent. Everybody they think, well, I must be dumb. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. And so the thing is, whatever people's minds assess are usually some kind of like gross overgeneralization that wasn't really fitting the data in the first place. It still does. So I recommend you make the mistakes that come from honesty. See, life is trouble. You're going to have trouble in your life, period. There's going to be trouble. You can't avoid trouble. It's fine. Spending your life avoiding trouble is a hell of a lot of trouble. And so life is trouble. The question is, which is the best kind of trouble? And I say the trouble that comes from honesty is the best kind. The trouble that comes from being too careful is the worst kind. You end up being like a fundamentalist who can't even like have a drink. And whereas me, you can be a derelict, redneck alcoholic and have a hell of a lot of fun smoke dope all day. <laughs> It's a better life.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, so we've spoken about a lot of the upsides to using this approach. So how about the downsides of not doing it? Like if we're in relationships today and we've got these white lies being diplomatic and not telling truth, what what do you see as the major downsides that people don't acknowledge?
1: Well, that it's costly to be careful all the time. It's also costly if you're completely careless all the time, too. But I mean, the careful extreme is what's usually recommended. This is what teachers and parents and all that say. They teach you these tales of woe that will happen if you take certain risks or do too much of a certain thing. They're giving all these stories that are warnings. And so you start believing all these stories of warning. What happens is you sort of walk around in a mildly paranoid shell all your life. You don't walk up and say something to somebody. If you see something happening, you just try to disappear and avoid it. If somebody gives you some shit, you'll just be polite and hate them, be mad at them and stay mad at them and not ever say anything. Whereas if you're actually expressive and somebody says something to you nasty, you can say, kiss my ass. (laughs) And you feel fully self-expressed. And both of you might get over it. Maybe not. You might get it, bump heads with people down then in ways you wouldn't if you're careful. But it's better to get in that kind of trouble than it is to get in the trouble that comes from like being lawyer or an insurance salesman or a fundamentalist <laughs> preacher <laughs> it's not much of a lie
0: when i think about it it's it's like comparing the short-term benefits of avoiding a little bit of pain compared to the long-term hurt from living a, a dreary uneventful life not getting what you want you know all of these kind of things that hits in the long term but most people prefer the short-term so the, the long term, I'm sure you've come across this kind of struggle. That's right. I agree
1: completely. The thing is that in the long term, you're going to be better facing up to the stuff you want to avoid in the short term. And it's a little bit of trouble in the short term, but it's bigger trouble in the long term from avoiding. So I agree. I think that's right.
0: Absolutely. So I, in, in order to motivate people, I've been to things like Tony Robbins seminars, you know, Tony Robbins, across. It's, so one of the things he does actually in, in his uh, Unleash the Power Within is he makes you focus on the pain. If you do not change, uh-huh. right? I don't know if you've seen anything like that because I'm sure you've come across difficult people to get motivated to start this. And are there any tricks or approaches you found is good to get people to, maybe it's like focus on the pain of the future, or is there any other approach like to get them to take action and start with this?
1: There isn't any real pain in the future. It's just an imaginary pain. So if you focus on the pain, if you have a toothache, focus on the pain until you bring it with something happens, either it gets worse and then it gets better or you go get somebody to help you fix it, or you take a painkiller, but you don't run away from it. You focus on it, and then you do whatever you need to do in relating to it, not playing like it isn't there. The big problem in relationships is people are always playing like things aren't there when they are. What you have to do is to quit playing like something isn't there when it's there. Say it, do it, talk about it, deal with it, and have the experience of it. Because when you experience an experience, it often increases a little, then it decreases a little, then it recedes and goes away. And what keeps a lot of pain in gear is tensing up to resist it, which generally makes it worse. So what you want to do is to be with whatever your pain is, if it's or your anger, or your hurt, or your joyfulness. People can't stand too much joy either. So what we're after is you be able to tolerate all kinds of bodily experiences of things, and don't let your mind freak you out about, oh my God. This is going to happen. Oh my God, you'll leave me. Oh my God. So your mind is like hysteric in there telling you, watch out, watch out, watch out. And on one side and on the other side, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing?
0: Well, this sounds, this sounds like a much calmer approach to life. To me, maybe people at home aren't going to be thinking that way because it probably doesn't sound like that. But it sounds like a more, I know you believe in, do you recommend people meditate and get into these kind of practices as well?
1: I do. I teach meditation, and I meditate, and I teach yoga in my workshops and seminars. In my eight-day workshop, we meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. I teach self-hypnosis and deep relaxation, stretching, recommend aerobic exercise, and participate in myself. I play golf all the time myself, and I recommend that people do things physical things to take care of themselves as being more important almost than any of the mental or psychological recommendations. So I think that if you pay attention to your body and it wants to move, move your body. Basically, you have information there It's more important than whatever's in your head. And so generally, the information that comes from noticing your body, noticing the world, and noticing other people is more valued information and valuable information than what comes from reading a book in your head about what you used to think about so-and-so, and this person's kind of like so-and-so. You can say that to them, talk about it, but what you're going to get is more information from the interaction between the two of you than you had in your head alone. So basically, I recommend that you trust your body and distrust your mind.
0: That's a very good summary. (laughs) In fact, it's things like meditation and getting out there and experiencing like golf and and, and these kind of things uh, put you more in touch with yourself so you're not lying as often. Is that part of the link between those things for you?
1: Well what happens is the link is that when you're lying, you're doing something to preserve your reputation in the minds of other people. You're wanting to look like something. You don't want people to think badly of you. You want people to think well of you. You don't want people to know you did something they wouldn't like. You don't want so you're constantly wrapped up in this ongoing mind fuck about what your life's about. <laughs> and it's a whole lot better to go ahead and live your life than it is to spend your life and your mind worried about how it's going.
0: Great, thank you. Okay, so some quick fire questions. Uh, I mentioned before I wanted to just run some scenarios past you. If I'm married and I've had six, six affairs over the last few years, after listening to this, do I, do I go home and do I tell her? Do I tell my wife? Or Yeah, you
1: have to tell her. I would recommend that you get a friend to come sit with you or you go do, see a therapist or you say the truth about what you did and describe in exact detail who you did it with, how many times you did it, how much fun it was, whether it worked, whether it didn't work. And what you lied about. And I recommend that you do that in order to renew or end your relationship. And when she tells you about the three guys she was humping while you were gone, (laughs) you listen to that. And the thing is that both of you are going to be able to have a level of connection that you've been avoiding with each other for a long time. That basically... The affairs and the secrets, the secretiveness about the affairs was the most damaging part. And and basically, when you say, I saw her and it made me horny and she wanted to do it, and I hadn't been with her before, and so we did, and I set it up and we did that, and I know it makes you mad and hurts your feelings. She'll throw the pan at him and hit him over the head and holler and carry on and cry and then say, well, okay, you're not the only one, and then tell him, usually there's another one on the other side. If there isn't, then that has to be told. And it's a hard, short-time thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. And yes, I do recommend that you do that because the future you have in that relationship is a future of you living in condemned isolation without real sharing with her and only talking about things but not with each other concerning what's really going on. And that's a
0: harder life. Sounds like a ghost relationship, just the way you're wording it.
1: Yeah, most of them are, you know. I'm kind of cynical. Relationships generally, I'd say 12% is probably, about 12% of relationships are happy, relatively happy, good marriages. And the other uh, 88% are phony, they separated, alienated, Even people that stay together living in isolated hatred. And there are a lot more relationships of people that are free and intimate when they're not bound by obligation to each other. Right.
0: You're saying there are like, marriages of convenience, rather than because they actually want to be there.
1: Almost all marriages are where two idealists are trying to make it work, in spite of lying like shit to each other, so they appear to be making it work. But most of it's pretending.
0: Okay, this is another common scenario that, that comes up. You meet a girl, and you go home with her, and, and you're lying in bed together after making love, and she asks you, how many people have you slept with before me? This happens a lot, I think, to the guys they are in their 20s uh, more. What, would, what does the guy say if he slept with 130 women?
1: 130.
0: Well, whatever. Maybe 600 like you. <laughs> <It's> like, whatever.
1: <laughs> well, that's what he says. Yeah. She asks and you tell her and ask her how many men she slept with. She says two. Okay. So I ask her if she was more than that. <laughs> and then have that conversation. Nice. And have the conversation about how it was when you made love this time. and See if you can't do it again before you go home and don't run away in the morning because
0: that's the best time usually right so i notice a lot of these i'm sure i could throw all sorts of scenarios at you and you wouldn't you'd be very calm and you'd come up with something interesting to talk about in that scenario just by like thinking about oh yeah that's a it sounds like you kind of think that's an interesting yeah so i'd want to know how she feels about that and which sounds like a, a good approach also to eliminate well let me say a lot of drama or a lot of conflict right it seems like a good approach to, to didn't that, and you're still being honest and direct.
1: It creates a lot of drama, and it eliminates a lot of drama. The drama that it creates is better than the drama that comes created out of withholding.
0: If people want to connect with you and see what you're up to these days, are you on Twitter, are you on your website, or where would people connect with you?
1: RadicalHonesty.com is a website. It has all the other connections on it. I'm starting an online workshop in the fall that's called How to Get Over Shit and Be Happy. And uh, basically, I do an occasional eight-day-long workshop. Great. And I do that every year. I do a workshop or two in Europe and a workshop or two in America each year.
0: And you're 75, right?
1: Yeah, I'll be 75 in September, yeah.
0: That's great. You sound like a very active 75-year-old. I am. You know? You're Work- still following the dream.
1: Yeah, working harder than I want to, but it's okay. <laughs> as long as it doesn't affect my golf game too bad, I can take it. <laughs> That's right. I stay pretty active. I'm, so we're actually a cult and we're trying to take over the world.
0: <laughs> How successful has it been? Is successful as Scientology or not, not as?
1: Well, I would say more successful than Scientology. Basically, a lot of people, the world is coming toward us. Even the Supreme Court and even the, the things that have happened in the last week are encouraging with regard to honesty. People are fed up with being lied to. We're fed up with being lied to by bankers. We're fed up with having billionaires control every damn thing we do. We're fed up with money and politics. And there's a hell of a lot more of us than there are them. And it won't be long before the number of people that are against the number of rich people are going to win. Money's not going to keep talking forever. When it gets to be 98 to 1, we're going to get them. (laughs)
0: Looking forward to it. (laughs) Good. <laughs> so, are there any other people besides yourself you'd recommend for advice in this area about improving relationships and potentially it's something on a completely different tangent, but I don't know, is people you've learned from or respected or you've just come across and you appreciate that stuff?
1: I was trained by Fritz Perls and all of his books are good and basically I like a lot of other There was I recommend them on my on my website. I know a lot of radical honesty trainers and a lot of people. Susan Campbell's written three books that are very much like radical honesty, getting real. And there are David D'Angelo, who will, Annie Lala, who's married to Evan Pagan. And that's a great. Have you ever had Annie on your show yet? Yeah. You ought to talk to Annie. She's a live wire. I
0: haven't. I haven't.
1: And and Evan is too. Evan and Annie have a great relationship and a little girl, and they're. They're basically, he was in the dating game for a long time. And he's got a lot of newer wisdom now. He's a little sorry for some of the stuff he put out on the internet before.
0: Right, things change over time. He's got this new program called Love the Final Chapter, which is a lot more in-depth and different, of course.
1: Yeah, it is. I like it a lot. I went to the last uh, master class on that and spoke and helped do it. Basically, there are lots and lots, there's lots of help out there. But basically I have lots of people recommended on my website, other people's books and stuff, Great, people can
0: find that. All right, thank you for those. Last question, if you were to give guys free practical tips to run away with, like the top recommended things, especially for guys who are kind of new to trying to fix or trying to improve their dating, sex, and relationships lifestyle, um, what would your top three tips be?
1: First tip is to engage with interest, pay attention, To that person and whatever you got a question about or curiosity about ask questions tell the truth don't ask questions like oh i now should ask questions but ask questions when you're curious so the first thing is good and be curious and the second is be open tell the truth even if it's something that she doesn't like and the the third thing is some you win some you lose it's okay if there's a beautiful girl and she just doesn't take to you and then that won't be the last beautiful girl you'll ever talk to. Don't tell yourself all these desperate stories. I mean, you'll tell them, but don't believe them. And basically, just go out there and fuck up. If you fuck up four or five times a week, you'll get laid twice. Right. <laughs> so that's the way it goes. Don't be hysterical about the future. It's all right. Just go out there and talk to a whole lot of women. Find one that you like and be with her for a while and tell the truth and see what happens.
0: Thank you very much. Very solid. It's very solid advice for the guys. I'm a huge fan of the curiosity and be curious and everyone and everything around you. It makes a huge difference. So thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat. I enjoyed it very much. A little bit of conflict here and there. It's always good. <laughs> good. Also.
1: All right. Thanks. I enjoyed it.
0: Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com, how we help men like you take control of their dating lives.